0: Welcome to HQLA. This week we had WWDC um, 2023, which is uh, Apple's Worldwide Developers Conference. Uh, so that's what their normal, yes, yeah, that's what their normal event is called. Yes, and the, obviously the biggest thing that came out of this, you would have seen this, is the Apple Vision Pro VR headset. Uh, so this is 3500 USD. Um, it's a big VR headset. It uh, it looks like you can still kind of see the stuff that's around you as you've got it on. Um, I saw one of the, it was one of the goofiest looking things on the demo where the person is wearing them. They're, they're looking at their coffee table and all of their apps are in front of them. Mm -hmm. They've got rows of apps. And then someone comes into the frame and they're showing how, oh yeah, if someone comes into the room, you can still see them, you know, it's normal. But then you look at the person and they've got like these big googly eyes, um, on the outside of like the VR goggles. And I was like, what, what is this Apple? Yeah, I, I saw that too. So
1: I thought it was weird. Initially, I thought it was like some sort of like translucent glass thing where you like, you can see their eyes. And it's kind of like they've got glasses on. And so it's like, you know, you see that, like old people sometimes with the really thick glasses and their eyes look crazy when they look at you. Yeah, it, yeah. It kind yeah. of has that yeah. effect. Um, and so I assumed it was that. Um, and then realized that it actually has like an exterior screen that is like replaying the person's eyes that's being captured by the cameras on the inside. Um, which is like pretty crazy. And you can see why it's so expensive because it's got like s- screens on the outside, screens on the inside. Um, and yeah, but yeah, I do think it's a funny one. It- it's the same concept as, do you remember when, um, was it, is it, was it the Facebook glasses? Um, and they had a camera in them and the light was on when it was live. Um, as like the a. Oculus? I, no, 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 no. I'm talking about like the, the glass now. I'm not talking about, um, like VR headsets. Oh, right, right. And it had a camera in it that could capture stuff. And they had to have a light on it for like basically for security reasons because or privacy reasons because like people could just walk around and you wouldn't know if you were recording or not. So they had a little light on it. It's maybe kind of the same thing in that like you're like letting people know that you can see them or you can't see them. But yeah, it's (laughs) pretty weird.
0: Yeah. For me, I'd rather have a MacBook. I'd be interested to see where they kind of go with this. It looks like it's just got all of the standard apps that you would kind of have in Apple software. So... Did you say yeah, sure. it's
1: how it interacts with, like, a MacBook? So, apparently, again, this is, like, it's yet to sort of be seen. It's just like a demo model or whatever, or, yeah. But, um, essentially, if you look at your Mac, um, it knows that you're looking at the Mac screen, and it, like, makes it big. Um, and so, you use the Mac. So, you use the mouse and the keyboard and stuff, but you're, like, looking around as if you're, like, almost inside the Mac, which is kind of cool. I've seen kind of how they do Oculus stuff
0: with the um, extra screens. Like, they make sort of... okay um, extra desktops and stuff. But yeah, that's, um, that's very interesting. Yeah. I don't know if they'll go anywhere with it, but, um,
1: I think maybe some people like that. I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I I would get around it if and when it gets to the point that it is just like a set of glasses and you can, you know, twist the little crown and they go totally opaque and you can just get like chill by yourself and then you, you like twist it again and it goes totally like transparent. Like that's a vibe. But like, you have to have a battery in your pocket with a, like a cable attached to it at this point for three and a half grand. And it lasts two hours, which like I saw some (laughs) commenter made a great point, which is like a lot of their marketing is like watching movies, but like most movies go for two hours or more. It's just like, you can't even watch (laughs) a movie without being plugged into the wall.
0: Yeah. Very strange. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We've also got, uh, auto transcribing voice memos. Um, so if you're not able to, um, Listen, you can see the text. Oh, uh, so to me, that's kind of um, that's kind of dumb because I don't listen to voicemails and uh, voice memos in the first place. So, do you um, mean
1: like? I mean, I guess do you mean like voice, like someone leaves you a message on the phone.
0: No, like um, you know when you tap the record button. Oh, yeah, and it, instead of texting, yeah, yeah. on the iPhone, yeah, it transcribes so it. Okay, we've also got name drop. This was an obvious one. Um, put your phone next to someone else's phone. And you can choose which info to yeah, share. Yeah, it is obvious. It's um, like
1: they're just sort of keeping up at that point with that one. Like that wasn't necessary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: Like even I wanted to do this like five years yeah. ago. Um, <laughs> and um, you can also leave a message if someone misses you on FaceTime. That one seems pretty
1: No, neat. that's cool. So that's the real-time one, right? Where it's like I can – I think it's if you leave me a message or something that I can see you leaving the message or like it's sending it, – it. I think it transcribes it in real-time or something and then I can decide to pick it up. Or something like that. Is, wasn't that kind of like the thing?
0: I thought it was just like a video. Like it just like records a video.
1: I don't know. I feel like it was something. I remember them making a big emphasis on like back in the day when you had an actual voice message. You know how people would leave it to, like you see it in the movies, where people would leave it to the voicemail. And then if they hear that it's someone that they want to listen to, then they pick it up. I think it gives you that ability, but I'm not sure how it actually does that.
0: That's a classic Seinfeld yeah. Uh, move. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, And then they also have the phone that you turn sideways and you can kind of see it's like the always-on. Um, you can kind of see a little dashboard. Like you can just see the clock. It's almost uh, like your bedside table Yeah, right. Um, but it like doesn't use on. power yeah. or whatever. Yeah, something like that. <laughs>
1: well, not much. Okay.
0: Yeah, so that's, uh, that's it for the Apple event. Uh, we've also got Photoshop beta. This is uh, really interesting. Okay. So it comes with generative fill now. So basically, this is wild. So you can take a photo, and you can change things on your photos. If you're holding a cup of coffee, you can change it to a beer. You can change it to a puppy.
1: So it can identify objects sort of thing. So you can click the object. Is that sort of what you're
0: saying? You're in Photoshop and you select um, objects like you would normally. And then you could be standing in a park and you can change it to standing in space. Um, You can add people to your photo. You can add a Lamborghini and um, do whatever you can think of in terms of auto-filling. So heaps of people have been using this to extend photos. So like they'll take a small bit of a photo And then drag out the edges.
1: But is this usable for like a lay person or do you still need to be like, like, do you still need to have usable knowledge of Photoshop?
0: Well, it's pretty easy, but if you have Photoshop, you likely aren't just like a standard.
1: Well, that's right. Like for me, is this something that is is useful for me who doesn't actually know how to use Photoshop?
0: No. But would you be interested in doing it in the first place?
1: Yeah. If it was as simple as like clicking an object that it recognizes as an object and then saying, I want this to become a puppy. But if it's like, you need to like draw an outline around it and like define it as this layer and then put another layer on top of it and then add a new plane and then, no, that's cool there. I like
0: it. All right. So where's something? Um... Oh. So that was what it looked like before really and then um say so if i want a, let's add a dog here so let's go generative fill dog no and then ready yeah yeah there we go Whoa. and then we can say we want some planes in the sky
1: no way
0: yeah so i mean that that's that's basically the gist of it it's a really that is cool very cool beta i'll play around with it a bit more but yeah photoshop beta really cool so
1: go cool. love it i mean great thank you for showing us that So an interesting one, this is a um, public service announcement. And so uh, just for people to be aware, I I read it interestingly uh, in the AFR. Um, uh, I think it was actually two weeks ago. So it's not super recent news, but it's worth knowing, Um, which is that the, so here in Australia, we have hex debts or help debts. I actually don't know which is which, but essentially it's like uh, college debt or university debt, uh, which the government Um, provides for, so you go to uni, yeah, you rock up, uh, you rack up anywhere between hundred K depending on what you're doing. Um, and, um, basically the way it works here in Australia is that when you earn over a particular threshold, which is in the fifties, I think, um, per year, then you, uh, commence paying back a portion of that um, uh, like a percentage of your salary, uh, gets paid towards that. Now, the interesting thing here is that people were getting very caught up on this indexation, which was happening, uh, about a month or so ago, or maybe even less, to be honest, um, which is basically, um, you don't, you're not charged interest on this loan, but, uh, it is indexed to keep up, um, with the value of money, uh, basically, um, and so, um, inflation had, uh, Basically, led to it needing to be indexed by seven percent, and so people were getting uh, concerned about that because that would mean that the uh, the amount that they needed to pay back was was going up by seven percent. So, uh, a lot of people uh, there was there was an article which talked about uh, the timing of the indexation uh, versus the timing of the tax returns. And so, basically, what this means is that indexation happens. Uh, I think it's at the beginning of June. Uh, Whereas, and so a lot of people assumed that for that calendar year, all of their contributions, assuming that they're making more than the threshold amount, and so they're assuming they're paying it off, uh, all of their contributions were lessening the amount or the figure that was going to get indexed um, because, uh, you know, they've been paying towards it. And uh, actually, the way it works is that when you're paying those contributions across the year, uh, it is sort of... Uh, noted as a, as a a deduction from your hex debt, but doesn't get applied until you finalize your tax return, which is usually anywhere between July and September, which basically means that that bulk figure that gets indexed is the big figure without being reduced by your um, payments across the year. And so uh, it was really interesting. And then I thought that was a bit of an issue in the system, but then uh, a spokesperson from the ATO commented that, that uh, they see no reason to change that system Unless legislated uh, against it, so that is how it works. So if you're making contributions, it's not going to lessen the amount that is uh, going to be applied to the indexation on the first uh, of June or whatever it is. So yeah, it's interesting. Yeah,
0: yeah. I've, I've. Um, that's an annoying thing because yeah, obviously, like you pay it throughout the year, um, and then yeah, and then it goes up, even though it goes up on the amount before you've even paid it off. So that's yeah. exactly right. Yeah.
1: Yes. All right. Great. Love it. Are you struggling to get your name out there? Do you want to attract more customers? Maybe just increase your revenue? Well, look no further than Unique. They're an all in one marketing agency, and they'll help take your business to the next level. They believe in marketing that should be both effective and enjoyable, and I tend to agree. So they offer a range of services such as web design, branding, social media management, and lead generation. The team of experts, they'll work with you to develop a tailored marketing strategy that fits the unique needs of your business. And they don't just stop at making you look good, but they're specialized in setting up lead generating machines. Their top secret methods will help you capture and convert your leads, leading to increased sales and revenue for your unique business. So search NEW, NIQ, UE on Google to learn more and schedule a free, yes, free marketing consultation via their website. So let NuNik take your business to the next level.
0: A few weeks ago, I talked about the Instagram's co-founders going back out again. Yes. Launching Artifact, making that next startup after their, you know, massive success. So I'll be talking about Airbnb doing the same thing. So Joe oh, Gavigo. No yeah. So he's a co-founder of Airbnb and he's launched a project called Backyard, which builds tiny net zero homes and known as backyards. So... Essentially, Airbnb has this innovation studio called Samara. So that's where the product has originated from. And Samara is now this, uh, it's like a VC, not a VC, it's a, it's a firm on its own. So it's like he's made his own standalone company out of, um, out of this. So it Like it's an, an of,
1: accelerator?
0: Well, it's kind of separated.
1: So yeah, basically,
0: yeah. it was a part of the innovation studio of Airbnb. And now it's split off to be its own startup. Um, gotcha. Okay. And him being the co-founder, I guess he can kind of do whatever he wants. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so pretty cool.
1: Oh wait, Samara, how does that relate to the backyard thing?
0: So Samara was the Samara was like the innovation little hub inside Airbnb. It was always called Samara, um, and now it's taken out. And now Backyard is the project. Um, and Samara, but the company is the name called of the Samara. company. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Understood. Gotcha. Um, Yeah. So he started launching two, he started by launching two um, tiny net zero homes. So the goal there was to make net, as make tiny homes uh, better for backyards. So they're prefab and they allow for some additional affordable housing to your um, existing property, right? So there's three now that um, he's just launched a two bedroom. So They start for they start at two hundred eighty nine thousand for a studio three hundred twenty nine thousand yeah in US that's Um, a lot yeah it is it is a lot Um, (laughs) but uh, it's very it's a very bougie yeah it is it is but um it is a bougie um concept so well it's net zero mm, yeah 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 interesting okay yeah and so I think the way that it's all kind of designed and everything seems to be very Apple sort of um vibe so I think that that's what they're trying to they're trying to create this kind of really premium brand version. So yeah, two eighty nine thousand for a studio, three twenty nine for a one bedroom, and a two bedroom will be three sixty
1: nine. Oh um, my gosh. Which
0: includes and that includes installation in California. So Okay. It's um they put about half of the cost in um in installation. So Okay. Yeah. So the three sizes are 430 square feet, 550 square feet, and 690. So if that means uh, nothing to you, that's 39, 51, and 64 square meters. So pretty small. Um, But uh, not too bad. I mean, 64, though, is the two-bedroom option, and that's like a two-bedroom apartment. So that makes sense. So you can check them out on Samara.com if you're following along at home. So in Australia, it's more of like a granny flat. Um, It just sits out the back. Um part of the reason for the solution was housing affordability and a bit of a crisis around that. Um they're trying to make they're trying to make use of people's existing properties that have gone up a lot in value in California. Um and they have some spare backyard space, don't want to fully extend their house or whatever. So yeah, there's um they're prefabbed, they're designed to use half the power of a similarly sized home. And they're supposed to generate power through solar panels on the roof, right? So it's a steel frame. It's two inch cladding. It um, comes with five colors and on the actual house, two, two colors cladding. on the roof.
1: <laughs> like, yeah. you know what two inch cladding means? <laughs>
0: no, no, no. Two inch cladding. Um, <laughs> and <laughs>
1: What's the industry this, standard? This big. <laughs> yeah, but what's normal?
0: yeah, that's normal. Um, I don't know. I don't, well I don't know about I can't speak for California, so you know
1: okay that would right. be
0: that would be completely unfair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can add decks around the property, which is interesting, so they have like small decks around the glass doors that sort of are around the little backyard home. Um, it'll generate enough power to offset the main power bill is um, part of it, so I, I guess it it acts as a little power plant that you can plug back into your um, into your home. It's got all induction stovetop and electric ovens and comes with a bathroom, obviously, space for your little washer and dryer in there. They've got like a little open living room kitchen space. You can actually see the top-down view on them, which is interesting on the site. It's um it's heaps funny that they call it's such a such a Silicon Valley bubble because the tab where you see what the sizes of the homes are is called Tech Specs. Yeah. Um, which is <laughs> which is very funny because it's a home. So Joe was travelling and he saw he he's the co-founder. He um he visited a lot of tiny homes as research and he found that the main things that were annoying in tiny homes was low ceilings and noisy air conditioners. So they addressed the um those with having high ceilings in like this um traditional like kind of triangle roof style, right? They've got a quiet air conditioning system with hospital grade filtering. Overall, I think it's a yeah, I think tiny homes are a really cool idea. I think this is
1: it's a very different play from him, isn't it? Like this is uh, very much just physical products as opposed to SaaS.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, yeah, it's um, it's not a, it's not a consumer product, is it? It's, it's like it's, it's not for everyone to use and go and travel and, yeah, and make a cool app. It's um, yeah,
1: it's very interesting.
0: Very much a physical good. Yeah, I think it's a really cool idea. Um, yeah, they're trying to sort of make that Apple three product lines. Only a few variations. Um, so that's their their primary move there. Um, I think it's pretty cool. Uh, I think if they can kind of, it's more productizing the space sort of thing. So with a builder, you'll typically have a small builder that will do this sort of thing. And it'll take, you know, you can go through every option and you can decide what you want and you can, um, it'll be really specific and tailored to you. And so with a builder, that's kind of what I feel like that is what a lot of people would want. And so I think he's kind of bringing out this thing where it's like, no, just consider it. It's like a laptop or it's like a, you know, it's like a pair of headphones. You know, we've got two options. We've got, or we've got yeah, three I options. I think, yeah.
1: I think that's, I think that is right. So I'm I'm just looking at um, the thing that I thought was like, surely this is already a fairly saturated market. Um, in California specifically. And so I'm looking at a few different, um, competitors and your point is exactly right. Like all of them, when you get to like pricing options and stuff like that, it has so many different options and it talks about getting a free quote, like send us an email, give us a call, blah, 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 blah um, which is a big barrier to actually just entry. Whereas what you're saying is true. Like it's literally like you go on to um, their website, um, Samara website. And it's literally like, as you say, three options. Oh, cool. There's the, there's the price there. I know what I'm in, I'm in for, it is kind of expensive, but at least I understand what it is. And then off you go. You're right. It seems easy.
0: Mm, Yeah. So there could be, it's, there's definitely pros and cons around that. So yeah. Very interesting. Um, yeah. So that's it so far. Um, I like the idea. Hopefully it works, but, um, it seems like something where if you were really picky, you would kind of go, for an individual builder and you would talk to someone that you know and you would do that. I mean, I guess part of the issue there as well is like you you have to know someone, you get a recommendation, and you get the builder, whereas this is like, oh, this is this cool product. It's like a, it's like a product instead of a, a building, you know? So, yeah.
1: Yeah, interesting. All right, there you go. Uh, I think the point to be taken away there for me is, uh, you know, you listen to a lot of business commentators or, you know, business performance um, people and they talk about finding your niche, sticking to it, um, getting good at that thing, whatever. Um, and this defies that a little bit in that um, if that was the case, like you look at the Instagram people and they're, they're basically leveraging the skills that they've learned um, on in one project and just applying it to a slightly different issue. Um, whereas this is very different. This is arguably applying considerably different skill sets um, to a different issue. And so, uh, it is cool though. Like, I think it's encouraging cause I think I like the idea of like just doing lots of different things. And so sometimes it's a bit, um, I don't know. I feel like sometimes it's a bit sad when people are like, Oh, you got to just do your niche. And I'm like, Oh, it's boring though.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it goes with his Airbnb. Like it's like a, it feeds into his Airbnb um, no, concept sure. as well, because the main people can live in the back house and the, they can rent out their front or they can rent out the, the backyard and they can, live in their house, you know, so. Yeah, yeah so
1: you could, you could imagine there would certainly be, the people who are building these granny flats would certainly be marketed as like potential Airbnb hosts in the future. Yeah, mm, you can definitely sure. see it being like an augmented product here uh, where they where they certainly relate. So yeah, it's interesting. Nice stuff. Are you struggling to get your name out there? Do you want to attract more customers? Maybe just increase your revenue? Well, look no further than Unique. They're an only one marketing agency and they'll help take your business to the next level. They believe in marketing that should be both effective and enjoyable. And I tend to agree. So they offer a range of services such as web design, branding, social media management, and lead generation. The team of experts, they'll work with you to develop a tailored marketing strategy that fits the unique needs of your business. And they don't just stop at making you look good, but they're specialized in setting up lead generating machines. Their top secret methods will help you capture and convert your leads, leading to increased sales and revenue for your unique business. So search UE on Google to learn more and schedule a free, yes, free marketing consultation via their website. So let Nunique take your business to the next level. Have you ever wondered why Burger King is called Hungry Jacks in Australia?
0: <laughs> I have wondered this, yes, yeah.
1: <laughs> Do you know why?
0: I'm not sure, no. someone else Oh, someone owns the, yeah, the name. Yeah.
1: Would you like to hear more?
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: So this actually, I'll just give you the rabbit warren, which I went down to actually get to this topic. And so it started by, I saw in the news this week that Pizza Hut Australia, uh, the franchise license was purchased by a company called Flynn Restaurant Group which is the largest uh, franchisee in the U S and so that then led me down a bit more of a rabbit, um, uh, rabbit Warren, I suppose, or whatever you want to call it. Um, in that I was like, Oh, hang on a second. But there's another company that owns like yum brand is like a pretty big publicly held food brand company in the U S and I was like, Oh, but don't they own pizza hut. I don't understand how this works. And then I realized that like owning a brand, and being a franchisee of that brand are two very different things and that there's these people who have made a lot of money, um, leading up basically between the fifties and now who have just specialized in being a franchisee. Um, and that you like these massive franchisee companies who own, like, for example, the franchisee license for like every Wendy's, every KFC, every pizza hut. Um, and then they just, they literally, they're just operators. Um, which I thought, oh, that's kind of interesting. And then I looked at the equivalent in Australia and landed on uh, a guy named Jack Cohen, uh, who is, uh, we're going to learn a bit more about, and so he's the Hungry Jack's man, and you can al- already see a link in the name there to him. And so, uh, we are going to dive into that. So do you know what the oldest American fast food chain is? I wonder if you would know this. It's not, it's not anything we've ever seen in Australia.
0: The oldest American fast food chain.
1: Yeah. Well, Arguably obviously. sort of the, the first one.
0: Okay. Obviously, it's not going to be Mc McDonald's, McDonald's then. Because... No. Yeah.
1: You would know that. Yeah,
0: Yep. I would know that. It's called... Um,
1: yeah. White Castle. White Castle. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. You
1: will have only have heard of it like in a movie or something, for example. I've, I've seen, seen it. To the in,
0: so I know it from Impractical okay. Jokers because, um, oh, yes. you know, the, yeah, the show with the four guys and they go behind the counter and they have to do just ridiculous stuff behind yes. the counter.
1: Is that the one where he, like, he has a, I think he's serving with just the apron on or something like that. <laughs> yeah. um, Some
0: stuff like that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Um yes, I have seen that one. Um, yes, good, good touch point. So they were founded in 1916, which is a really long time ago, uh, more than a hundred years ago. And so uh Burger King, let's talk about the foundations of Burger King, and then we'll weave that into how that um sort of uh, extended into Australia. So Burger King was founded in its very first iteration in uh, 1953 and now i say that because it was not called burger king it was called insta burger king insta hyphen burger second word king um and the reason for that is because it was based on a machine uh called the insta broiler and so this allowed them to cook the burgers so they could cook up to 400 burgers an hour and it was you know when you go to these um hotels and when you cook toast, you don't put it in a toaster in a hotel, you put it in the little conveyor belt and it goes in and then it goes down and it comes back out. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Same product, but it was for burger patties. And so this was this big thing. It, it, it sort of was one of the instigators of the ability to create fast food burgers. Um, and so, uh, they were so encapsulated by it. They called it, um, Insta Burger King. Uh, however, the machine quite quickly became uh, unreliable. And so David Edgerton, who was one of the two co-founders of Burger King, um, allegedly got so annoyed with it that he vowed to create his own proprietary cooking method. And so basically that's what ultimately led to their kind of like well-known um, flame cooked burgers. Um, and so they changed the method. Um, and so that's kind of now that one of the hallmarks, if you see a lot of their branding, um, on TV and stuff like that, it has flames everywhere and flame cooked Whopper and stuff like that. Right. So at this point, um, unfortunately quite quickly, and that is within about six years, um, they ran into some pretty serious financial difficulties. So much so that two of the franchisees who had started a bunch of restaurants uh, actually purchased the whole brand, um, and renamed it Burger King. And so, uh, that was the foundation of Burger King as we know it today. So, uh, if we skip a number of years, get us to, uh, 1967, uh, at this point, Burger King is purchased or acquired by a company named Pillsbury. Now you won't necessarily have heard of Pillsbury, although it is, I think still to this day, one of the largest uh, like cake mix manufacturers in the US uh, is, or it certainly was owned for a time um, by General Mills. I'm not sure if it still is. General Mills is you know, one of the biggest cereal cake um, companies in the US and I think even in, into Australia. And so, uh, this is an important point. It seems irrelevant, but it is, it is, it is important. We'll come back to it in a minute. Um, and so, uh, one interesting point that's just funny is that, so obviously Pillsbury's buys uh, Burger King and they're trying to revive it and, you know, expand it, make it bigger. They think they know what they're doing. They're a big corporate. Um, and so they poach the McDonald's chief operating officer, whose name is Donald Smith. Um, <laughs> and he becomes the CEO of Burger King, um, for a period of time. So let's talk about the global, um, expansion. So in 1963 was the first location internationally for Burger King, which was, uh, Puerto Rico, actually. Uh, second location was Canada in 69 and third was Australia. So we're third on the list of importance, which is, uh, interesting. Um, and so if you were to travel in time into three different, le- uh, time periods, if you into the seventies, as I said, where, um, Burger King first came to Australia, you'll notice that there was only Hungry Jack stores. Now what you may not realize due to our age is that if you were to come to Australia in the nineties, particularly maybe in the first half of the nineties, you'll notice both Burger Kings and Hungry Jack stores. Did you know that? No, no. Yes. Interesting. So there was both, um, a substantial number of both, but now, which is our current experience, there's only Hungry Jack stores. So we're going to dissect, uh, how that happened and why that happened. So basically foundations, I mentioned Jack Cohen, Uh, he's originally a Canadian businessman, now lives here in Sydney, in Australia, and he became the exclusive and sole franchisee, uh, in Australia, had, you know, the rights to the territory to open, he was the person who could open stores, uh, that were Burger King stores. He opened his first store in, uh, Perth in Australia, um, and it's worth noting here the way that it's structured in the U S so Burger King has a number of subsidiaries. That are responsible for different things. Uh, one of them, for example, is uh, Burger King Brands, which is responsible for all of their IP management. Um, and there's about forty or so of these subsidiaries that look after different elements of the business. Now, uh, unfortunately, uh, in 1971, as I mentioned, uh, they reach out to you know they make it establish a connection with David, uh, with Jack Cohen, and they quickly realise that the trademark for Burger King in Australia is already taken. Um, and so this is an issue and a large oversight by the in-house council in my personal opinion, um, particularly since it was third on the list. It's not as if they came to Australia 10th on this list of international countries, it's obviously a priority and yet no one realized or too late realized that, um, it actually wasn't possible to, to go there with the branding. So. Uh, what did they do? So basically I, I should just quickly mention, um, like the foundations of trademarks. So basically, uh, you can kind of, um, take it all the way back to, uh, 1883, which is called the Paris convention, um, which forms like a bunch of IP related, uh, standards. Um, and that links on to all of the countries that are in the world trade organization and basically stipulates that you need to, um, manage and operate your IP in a uniform manner. Um, to uphold some of the IP standards, which is, um, really important, I guess, in a commercial world. Um, and so, uh, it's interesting. So basically Burger King US did try to, um, negotiate purchasing, uh, the Burger King, uh, IP from the owner here in Australia, uh, but it was declined. And, um, so instead, what Burger King did was provide Cohen with a list of options, like a, a list of names that they did have trademarked here in Australia. Um, and one of them was Hungry Jack.
0: Yeah. Now
1: the reason why, and this comes back to the Pillsbury thing, the reason why they did have that trademark is because if you were to Google Hungry Jack pancake mix, uh, it is a pancake mix that's still made to this day, um, by the Pillsbury brand. And so for that reason, they held it just in case that brand wanted to, you know, extend into Australia. So he liked it. Evidently, his name's Jack. Obviously, you know, that seemed favorable to him. Uh, And so they added an apostrophe and an S to make it possessive. Um, And so it became Hungry Jacks. Uh, Now, you might be wondering, but who owned Burger King in Australia? Who owned the IP? Well, it's a man who I could find little information on, but I can give you some. His name's Don Durvin, and he was uh, originally an American who obviously was aware of Burger King F- through some series of very smart events, came to Australia, checked and realized that Burger King was not registered here. I don't know whether he came back to Australia with a list of, we're talking in the 60s here. So came back to Australia with a list of options and was just, maybe he went to the like the intellectual property registry and just like ask them, is this registered? Is this registered? Is this registered? And found Burger King, realized it wasn't registered. Cause I can't imagine how any other way that he would have been able to do it in that time. It's not like he was able to, I assume he wouldn't be able to jump on the internet and just type them all in. Um, anyway, so he realized, purchased it or registered it is, is better. Uh, and so he started his own very small chain of Burger Kings here in Australia. And it was waitresses on roller skates who would come out with the burgers and deliver it to people in their cars. And he ended up with about 17 restaurants. So not insignificant, mostly in South Australia, a little bit in WA. Um, and for Gage allegedly 1970s, um, his revenues were in the, in the realm of about a million dollars annually, which is I think something like almost reaching almost 8 million in today's money. Um, so as I mentioned, he wouldn't sell the IP. Cause he knew how valuable that was, um, to, um, to Burger King, but he did agree to sell a number of his stores. Um, and so, uh, Burger King or more specifically, uh, Jack Cohen purchased a number of his physical locations and rebranded to, uh, Hungry Jack's, as I mentioned. Now, uh, going forward a little bit here to the 1990s. Uh, By this point, Burger King uh, had become one of the largest international franchisees um, for the Burger King company. Uh, And in 1993, the Burger King uh, trademark expired in Australia. Oh, yeah. Okay. So Burger King Corporation, of which I'll refer to them as now because it's going to get confusing. Burger King Corporation, being the company in the US, uh, purchased the IP in Australia. So now they own the brand. Uh, they can go in and they can start operating Burger Kings uh, in Australia. But they had that exclusive agreement with Jack Cohen, who owns, by this point, 250 Hungry Jacks stores in Australia, and they can't necessarily go in and infringe on that. So basically, at this point, Burger King Corporation realized that there was some success in Australia. Australians were liking the product, liking the stores, and they wanted in. So they made numerous unsuccessful attempts to purchase... Um, Jack Cohen's Hungry Jack's business essentially go in, buy it all up, make it all corporate owned, and roll it out as um, Burger King now that they own the IP. But he declined. So instead, as I said, in, this is all in 1993, um, Burger King purchased. This is really interesting. Burger King purchased, Burger King Corporation purchased four existing Hungry Jack stores from separate franchisees. So people who had franchise oh, from Jack Cohen yeah. as the major franchiser. Um, and rebranded them to Burger King stores behind his back. Yeah. So some litigation ensues. So in 1998, so this five years later, uh, I guess this was maybe just a legal thing. Like this stuff takes a while. Usually, um, Burger King corporation attempted to formally uh, terminate their agreement that they had with Jack and they at the same time announced a $50 million plan to open 40 Australian Burger King restaurants. Um, and Cohen at this point, Jack Cohen, counterclaimed, saying that they had breached their contract. Uh, and uh, they claimed that he had, in fact, breached the contract, in that he had not opened the required minimum number of annual stores, which was oh, stipulated f- in, <laughs> in the agreement. So there's two claims. They're in court. Who's going to win? Well, Uh, basically long story short is Jack Cohen won and the court awarded him $70 million, about 70, I think it's $71 million in compensation and the right to continue the contract as the sole and exclusive franchiser uh, in Australia. So by 2003, uh, the Burger King corporation had totally relinquished their, um, operations, uh, to Cohen. There would have been some transaction there, whether they sold, uh, Their properties that they had started to develop there or what happened there. I'm not sure, but in true Aussie fashion, so there was total access to um, Hungry Jack- uh, Burger King at this point because they own the IP. They could have licensed it to him, but he decided to retain the Hungry Jack's branding and rebrand the, by this point, 81 Burger King stores that were established in Australia, rebrand them to Hungry Jack's and formed a network of 300 stores of Hungry Jack's stores. And he, there's a comment here. Uh, I'll just read it out to you. So said, Cohen, Cohen comments here to a paper saying, if someone can show us that changing the name to Burger King improves our image, then we'd have to consider it. But to change it just in order to have uniformity with international markets does not deliver a local benefit, which is <laughs> true. It's interesting.
0: Yeah. Wait, so that's interesting. Wait, if we go, if we go back a sec. Yeah, so go ahead. He's actually gone. He's like, he had the option there to use to license that Burger King name after all these lawsuits and stuff. Correct. And he's like he's gone through this whole turmoil. He's gone through this, you know, twenty year process or whatever. And then at the end of the day, he's taken this huge cash settlement and yep. then not used the Burger King name anyway. Correct. Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty funny.
1: <laughs> it is very interesting. So uh, nowadays, Uh, it's still, so he's still, he's the CEO of a company called competitive foods, Australia, competitive foods, Australia is that sole franchisee, um, for hungry jacks here in Australia. And there's now, uh, circa 400 stores in Australia. Um, and as I said, he's the CEO of that holding company. Um, also worth knowing about Jack or Jack Cohen is that he's also responsible for bringing KSC to Australia. It's crazy. You know, some some people just do so much. However, they sold all 44 of their Australian stores uh, back in 2013 for about $55 million to a, for, to a different company. Uh, he, was, he also had the controlling stake in Domino's Pizza Franchise Australia uh, prior to it going public in 2005. And he owned a large stake in Lone Star Restaurant, Uh, The chain that arguably is not that successful here in Australia, but still seems to continue somehow.
0: (laughs) They closed down. They closed down the one just here uh, the other day.
1: Oh, they did. I see the um, one in the in the the shops.
0: Katara. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay. Finally. I mean, but I mean, that was long lived. Like honestly, that (laughs) stayed open for quite a while, and it was always empty. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, And he even had a large stake in uh, the Ten Network. He may still, which is still pretty crazy. And so. Uh, to him personally, he is 80 years old. As I said, he lives in Sydney. He's ranked number 15 by Forbes in Australia in total net worth. And they approximate his net worth to be somewhere around $3 billion. At the peak of COVID, that number was $3.2 billion, And just prior to COVID, so a year earlier, uh, his net worth was approximately 1.6, which means that during COVID, allegedly, he doubled his net worth, which is pretty crazy. Yeah, that um, is crazy. And now sitting at three approximately. So, uh, interesting guy. That is the story of Hungry Jacks and Jack Cohen here in Australia.
0: Yeah, cool. I mean, yeah, it's it's really interesting to um, to see how he kind of um, took that brand that was sort of like it's like it's like one of those domain people that buy all of the domains. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, of people, you know, yes, registering businesses and. Yeah, Stuff so like Don that.
1: Dervin, who, you, who who you're referring to there, did that track. Right. Maybe that's the that was the point. Maybe, um, he went to the US, got a list of all the most successful brands, came to Australia, and just registered all of them or every, anything that he could. That's true, and that's as you say, a lot of people do that with domains nowadays. Um, so yeah, it's pretty interesting. It is worth noting. I'm not going to go into any detail because I haven't done enough research, but um, there is a lot of um high court um decisions here in Australia that try to interpret what is kind of like using a, a trademark not in good faith, if that makes sense. So mm. registering a trademark that you know is an established brand in another country, registering it here in Australia just for the purpose of kind of uh, leveraging that position. And there's been some – there's some argument that had that have happened later. So, for example, would if that happened now, uh, there's some argument for them being able to um, – get control of that IP um, based on some case law decisions um, as opposed to the legislation. But yeah, it's interesting. Are you struggling to get your name out there? Do you want to attract more customers? Maybe just increase your revenue? Well, look no further than Unique. They're an all in one marketing agency and they'll help take your business to the next level. They believe in marketing that should be both effective and enjoyable. And I tend to agree. So they offer a range of services such as web design, branding, social media management, lead generation. The team of experts, they'll work with you to develop a tailored marketing strategy that fits the unique needs of your business. And they don't just stop at making you look good, but they're specialized in setting up lead generating machines. Their top secret methods will help you capture and convert your leads, leading to increased sales and revenue for your unique business. So search N-I-Q, UE on Google to learn more and schedule a free, yes, free marketing consultation via their website. So, let NuNik take your business to the next level.
0: My next segment is someone you, someone everyone else would have heard of, maybe not not Nathan. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so... I'm going to be talking about Sound Ventures. So this is a venture capital firm, which is okay. created by Ashton Kutcher. So I have heard of him. There you go. There you go. So it's it's actually really cool. So it seems like he is more than just Michael Kelso from that 70s show, which is how he sort of started out. So this is um Soundwaves seems to be the name of the current fund that they're running. And basically, or the, the fund that has been established, uh, you know, years ago, And they're they're running it sort of at the moment. Um, So they've just established a new fund as well. So I'll talk about that in a sec. Okay. okay. So Soundwaves is uh, basically this investment vehicle that allows for sustainable clean business. And the thesis is completely focused on sustainable supply chain management, right? Okay. So their previous fund seemed to be called um, A-grade Investments. And Mm -hmm. they currently have a new fund. So the reason I'm bringing this up now is because they've made a new AI fund, which has been oversubscribed at $240 So... This fund includes investments in OpenAI, Anthropic, and Stability AI. So those are three um, pretty interesting names in in the space at the moment.
1: Could I ask, do you think that the founding of this was like? Did I, again, you are right. I don't really know who Ashton Kutcher is. Um, would he have made enough money in doing whatever he did to probably initiate this, mm-hmm. like fund himself to a certain point?
0: So I would say so. I would have said so before I prepared for this one, but he actually okay. does have all the LPs okay. um, like a traditional structure. I okay. think it's more his brand name yeah, so that's and everything. Wondering.
1: Is he leveraging his finance or is he leveraging sort of his, his like optics, like he's, his position in society. It sounds like he's maybe just using his, his notoriety. Mm, yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 So you would have thought that, but he actually started this. He actually started doing this in 2009. Um, and so, I mean, that would have been when he was at this, um, time of being pretty popular yeah so over across all of his funds he's got over a billion in assets under management um so this one this new one is a 240 mil um
1: you said oversubscribed what does that mean
0: oversubscribed means that there's too many people um that jumped in on the fund uh and so what they would have all been what would have happened was they would have all been scaled um since they're his lps they're sort of his People he's got all these relationships with his limited partners, and um, so and he would have basically
1: told them the maximum amount that they were able to invest. Is that what they saying? would have
0: said? Here's twenty million dollars, and then if he had, you know, twenty four of them that all said here's twenty million dollars, he would have scaled them all to ten. Yeah, um, here's and then, ten
1: back. We, I only want ten. Yep.
0: Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and so that would have been the um, the way that it worked. Either that or. He's taken on more I don't think he has taken on more capital than the fund size was supposed to be, but um, that would be the second option, but uh, that gets messy with the the performance that you're trying to deliver. if you just say, "I want $200 million, and then you get 300 million, you're you're, gonna, you're not going to perform as well because no.
1: More money's not always better, is it? When you when yeah. you get to that scale, it's actually difficult to deploy that much. And you, it was not in your in your business plan or whatever, your plan for the fund to deploy, you know, fifty percent more money. And so yeah, yeah it's true. Exactly. It's yeah, so
0: you might turn those thirty percent returns into fifteen percent when you have too much money. So yeah, that's the that's the issue. Um yeah, so he said that the it's potentially the most significant technology since the advent of the internet is the um, speaking to AI. Yeah, AI. So, okay, yeah, yeah. Basically, and I and I'd agree with that. It's um, it's really hmm. important. Mm-hmm. He is really impressively switched on. So, I've watched a bunch of interviews with him, and he's in you know the early two thousands. It was kind of like this romantic comedy actor, like just really airhead, like really seemed really dumb. Always played this really dumb character. <laughs> um, but yeah, he's he's really um, he's really clever. So Ashton has known Sam Altman for over a decade, which is um, which is interesting. Oh. So that's how we got into the OpenAI round. So obviously, we don't need to talk about how OpenAI's products, you know, everyone knows GPT-3, GPT-4, DALI at this stage, basically. Um, so that's OpenAI. Um, Anthropic, this is the second investment that they've made. So this one's interesting. It's um, It's a company that's all about creating AI research products that are about putting safety first. So... If you look up their website, it's actually really cool. Their first product seems to be called Claude and it's an AI assistant for tasks. It looks at looks like you can plug it into Slack and I'm assuming you can give it to some general tasks around processing language. Um, on their website, it's advertised as being useful for customer service, paraphrasing legal documents, coaching, like giving advice and stuff, uh, searching where to get your coffee, back office tasks like summarizing emails and some sales stuff. So I would say that this product's actually been around probably before ChatGPT because it doesn't seem as amazing now as like what it would have yeah. two years ago or whatever. Like Yeah. And I don't, I don't know when it came out, but um, I would say it's probably been one of those things, but it was just like a corporate-only corporate, corporate only sort of um, product. Mm-hmm. So it seems like the, the main advantage, this is geared towards companies and commercial uses, so I reckon the main advantage here would be around privacy. Um, like privacy and safety of data and safety of your kind of company. So for example, you shouldn't I, I um actually did a presentation on AI this week at work. And oh, really? um Yeah, which is pretty cool. I should I should great. have brought that up in our um in our intro. Yeah. But um so it was pretty cool. There it was to the to the full team, um, which uh-huh. was cool. Uh-huh. Um, but really you shouldn't be putting in and this is, you know. Verbatim, you shouldn't be putting in customer data or um, company-specific emails into ChatGPT, right? Yes. Um, because it's it's this public forum. It's this you don't know what the security's like on the back end. Mm. You're putting in, you know, an email which might have personal data in it or um, yeah. personal information, and it's taking that and putting it in its database. And um, so if you have a service that you really trust, like this custom fitted service, um, a bit like what Enthropic seems to be trying to do. Um, You kind of have more, you could probably have some contracts in place so that if there's a data leak or something like that, you have the right to sue them or you have the right to, Mm -hmm. you know, the criminal charges that go behind it or whatever it is. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, that's really cool. The third company that they're invested in is stability ai so this is the company that created stable diffusion which is the deep learning text to image model which creates detailed images based off text descriptions so i'm going to show you some okay i'm gonna do a little sharing sesh here we go i put in two two guys recording a podcast yeah and one of them's a knight in shining armor and one of them is a um astronaut right okay here we go. Here's a couple of the options. So there's this one. Wow. There's this one. It's just generating these these things straight up. Um. Whoa. And um, yeah, pretty cool. And then there is this one as well, which is um, which is pretty cool. So that's um that's actually Dream Studio. So they make a product called Dream Studio, which this is their like sort of premium paid sort of is this the same um, as Dali? Version. No, no, no. This is Stable Diffusion. This is a different um, company. So this is the third company that they've invested. in. Yeah, do
1: they do the same thing? You saying it's text to image, right?
0: Yeah, they do. They do a similar
1: thing, it looks but they have different. Me, actually,
0: well, they've got different styles and different um, mm. methods. So then, this is Stable Diffusion, which is their other sort of product. This is kind of this is Dream Studio, which seems like they've taken Stable Diffusion and they've added constraints and added more things to and added more styles as well this is the raw stable diffusion that you can find on the web um so this is the version so i've compared them so Whoa. this is heaves weird this version right oh. so as you can see it's like more realistic like it's more photo realistic yeah but it's like very strange right
1: yeah the, f- the face is weird
0: yeah 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 so faces and stuff um, yeah yeah so wow. super strange right Mm. Um, and then what I've put in, uh, so this is, this is yeah dream studio, um, by stability AI, which is the company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that's this, these are the stable diffusion versions, which are not the dream studio ones. Gotcha. Um, and then you can put in, I was defined a specific style, mm-hmm. right? So I put in like samurais that are also street races, um, that have cool nineties cars. Right. Cause I was like, okay, like what, what can I, what can I put in? And so it comes up with like this guy. Huh. Um, this guy. This is into stable diffusion. Um, it comes up with some like random um kind of stuff, but it is really interesting to kind of play around with. It's like it's definitely got some of the style I was trying to capture, but not fully. Um there. Yes. Uh, I put in um it's really cool what you can what you can do. And I wasn't sure if it would recognize. So this is the next one. Um, I wasn't sure if it would recognize specific TV shows or cultural things. So I was like, okay, like what would it do if I gave it Breaking Bad in the 1950s, right? Oh, yeah. Um, because I was like, I wonder if it can recognize specific branded stuff. Like in Breaking Bad, there's, you know, the bald guy with the mustache, Walter White, right? Um, and so it came up with the, it actually came up with some like 1950s oh, yeah. Um sort of wow. stuff and this is actually what he looks like so he does look like that yeah it's really interesting that the model has sort of been trained on it's probably been trained on the frames from the tv show right um i put in i put, <laughs> this one this one's he's funny and this gives you an example of how the faces are so weird but i put in seinfeld if it was made by supreme um and say so this is this is what it comes up with
1: <laughs> whoa and how weird
0: is it um Yeah. And, um, but I mean, it gives you, it gives you an idea. This is all not, um, Dream Studio. So now if I go back to Dream Studio, um, what else have I put in? This is, this gives you an example of what they can kind of turn it into. This one's cute crocodiles in space. Um, and so it gives you an example of like what they can kind of take stable diffusion with all the, the weird photorealistic Mm -hmm. images. Mm -hmm. And you could make a, uh, like a crocodile in space. That's like, yeah. I don't know. And like, oh, and I put in the same prompt with the yakuza, um, samurai, nineties stuff, and it comes up with this like cartoon image, Whoa. which is actually pretty good. Like,
1: that is actually really interesting.
0: Yeah. And so, and it come, it came up with um, also a guy with a t shirt and like stuff like that. So yeah. Anyway, so like, it's actually, it's taken that those weird sort of photorealistic like style things. And um and come up with some other stuff. So that's those are the three investments that he's done so far um okay, with that fund. With this I'll, fund. I'll yeah. come back to that fund um in a sec. But the team okay. at Sound seems to be made up of ten people. Um and there's three general partners, including Ashton Kutcher as as um as one of them. Um they've had thirty-five total exits across their um their funds so far. So from what it looks like, I think that they've had two funds but they also they might have had more i'm not not 100 sure on it
1: would there be any assumption that some of the some of these exits or that some of the exits that are included here are personal exits of of the people who are gps because it seems like too many fantastic exits for like one or two prior funds do you not think
0: Mm, yeah i'm not sure i'm not sure if they went and put in there um like i'm not sure if the fund went and bought off them, their angel investing, because basically he's done angel investing. Um, Is personally. he including
1: those angel investing exits in this webpage here? That's what. Well, that's what it I'm wouldn't asking.
0: be it wouldn't be unreasonable to think that they started the fund. So they started the fund in two thousand and nine, before a lot of these yeah. companies were funded, um, or before yeah, before they started whatever. Um, and so yeah, I, I would I would believe that they've done it in the fund. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, and then. That's crazy. Even if it was, even if it was angel investments, um, they could have sold their own angel investments to the firm, um, and then you know had an early secondary, you know, exit there, and then still participated in the whole exit because they worked there. Um, so some of the biggest exits that we've seen on the list: uh, Airbnb, we were talking about earlier, um, Bird Scooters, uh, Duolingo, GitLab, Lemonade, Pinterest, Robinhood. It's crazy! CT, like every company, Shazam, Square, Spotify, Uber. So yeah, pretty cool. What the um, heck? Yeah, so that's the twelve most sort of notable that I saw on there. Um, yeah, yeah, pretty cool, hey? So that's um, crazy. So it seems like they've they would have had massive success if um
1: it does seem like that if
0: they've exited from those and you know maybe they still hold some positions in some of them or I'm sure and I'm sure they hold heaps of positions in other um, companies as well. So, you know, who knows what, they'll, what their exits will look like in five years um, might be huge. So, yeah, so the fund takes, the whole strategy is the fund takes a, oh well, when, when they start a fund, they take a high risk, high reward strategy. So they invest in a smaller number of companies in each fund that they do. Um, so one of the advantages of sound that they brought up was that they're able to invest in companies that are competitors, which is a unique VC um, deal.
1: As in they invest in two different competitors.
0: Yeah, so that's something that they were talking about as their unique um, advantage, I think. So apparently VCs can't invest in competitors generally. So yeah, yeah that's interesting. Right. Yeah, it's cool. So their new um, core AI fund is about foundational models. Uh, and then the way that um, Ashton's described it is it's more of a web one approach. So that means that this is the layer one. This is the, the mobile revolution, the web revolution. Um, and then the application layer will be built on top of that. Um, so most of sound capital sound ventures um capital is invested in that foundational layer with um only smaller amounts and potentially in other funds that they start or whatever that will be invested in that application layer. Um, so in VC firms, there's the funds are usually like a seven to ten year thing, right? So they started this in uh, in two thousand and nine, and so they're likely to have had those two funds that we talked about before, uh, and they're starting this new one now, and um, and so it's and it, it's unclear they they could have had other funds along the way as well, um, and so yeah, that that's that's really interesting. So a lot of what Sound believes is actually that the incumbents are, that are able to adopt this technology are the ones that will capture a lot of the value from AI, and so the reason behind that, and so typically you'd think, oh, new technology. You think of netflix and and Blockbuster, right? You think of um Blockbuster just being that incumbent, and Netflix comes along with a new model and completely upends them. So the reason that sound believes that the um the incumbents will end up capturing this data is because or capturing this um yeah this value is because they have these huge data sets they have um, proprietary data, and they have specific customer data relating to their specific product, right? And so then they will be able to use that to generate to or, and use parts of these models and parts of AI and generate their own AI teams to kind of make their own machine learning model based out of their own data.
1: Which is more accurate because um, they have the most amount of data.
0: Yeah, exactly. And then they will win yeah. based on some random startup which has no data and a better yeah. model, you know? So, yeah. so it's yeah, interesting. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, on that,
1: on that, on that topic, just very quickly, if anyone wants to listen to an interesting podcast, Mark Zuckerberg was just on Lex Friedman in the last week. Um, and it's very interesting. They talk about, um, them purposely open, like allowing a lot of their products to be open source so that people can use them. And one of the things that, um, Mark Zuckerberg says is like, the reason he does that is because, um, the length, like the number of data points that are required for these LLMs um, is so huge that like there's only like literally like a handful of companies in the world who could develop them. And so if development on top of that was was predicated on you needing to have all of those data points, then the development would be so slow. And so he's like, it's a no-brainer that it has to be open source to allow people to build on top, as you say, to build application layers.
0: Yeah, interesting. Hey. Yeah, so they, um, they hosted this competition. This is an interesting, fun um, bit that I found from a while ago. Um, they hosted this competition where they um, fund a company that wins out of a 1,000 competitors. Um, and so this was six years ago that I found it. They funded this company called Opus 12, uh, which seems to have rebranded themselves to 12. Um, but uh, that was a climate change company turning CO2 products that are normally made from fossil fuels. Um, oh, like, sorry, they're turning, turning the C, CO2 output back into those products that are normally made from fossil fuels um so the whole thesis of the company is that carbon can be recaptured in the air now and turned back into these usable products um so yeah that was um an interesting one that they were passionate about so they've gone and they they were like they're super passionate about like the sustainable um environmentally friendly sort of stuff as well so that's pretty cool so i think that was Part of the thesis of their second fund, um, which was Sound Waves, um, was what it was called. So yeah, that was um, that was pretty cool. Uh, and that and their Sound Waves one was environmental friendliness in supply chain management. So yeah, um, that was a bit of a, a bit of a specific niche. But it's cool that they can sort of form funds around around sort of it's, niches.
1: It's a hot topic for sure.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and I think it was particularly when they because I think they formed it. Five or six years ago. So I think it was a more like you know, more vibrant, more relevant topic then as well. Um, yeah, so that's cool. Um so yeah, Ashton Kutcher played, yeah, Michael Kelso in that 70s show. He was in two and a half men. Uh he's been in countless rom coms. He even played Steve Jobs. Um, it's absolutely crazy to go to see him from going playing these roles as this dumb sitcom actor. To a seriously sophisticated investor that that like is on Bloomberg Technology, giving like these really, really good takes. Um, it's on CN- right. CNBC and you know everything like that.
1: Does and he seem to still be like an active actor, or is it? Do you feel like he's fully transitioned into this finance world?
0: I think he might have fully transitioned, but um, right. I haven't seen. Actually, he he did do a show um, recently. So yeah, it's it's cool to kind of
1: oh, so he's have, maybe doing both.
0: Have both. Um, yeah.
1: Although, could I say to your point? Is it like he is an actor, so he should be able to act as an intelligent financial investor.
0: Yeah, I mean I guess so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like Yeah. Um whether or not he is that
0: is yeah. unknown. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, who who could tell? But no, he um I think the level of quality in the answers off the top of his head was like impressive when they were asking about returns and portfolio makeup and all these different sort of things, he was like right there with the answer. And I was like, well, he actually, he didn't say like, ah oh, because he was sitting with his business partners. Um, oh, true. In, he in didn't defer. In all interviews. Yeah, and, right. yeah, yeah. and he will just answer questions and, and nail it. So yeah. Sick. Love it. Mm, pretty cool. This has been HQLA episode 34. Thank you for tuning in again. Uh, we've been talking intellectual property we've been talking venture capital and we have been talking about apple as well as that there is small homes in your backyard uh watch out so uh thank you very much from nathan and isaac uh this is the show where we talk about cool topics hqla